Welcome. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. Uh, I'm the youth pastor, so normally um, they put me down with the teenagers uh, because I act like a teenager sometimes. So. But it's good to know some things never change, and that's that no one likes to sit in the front row. So thank you for, I already feel comfortable because usually your kids are like further back. No, it's okay. It's okay. I spit a little, so it's probably safe. All right. So Pastor Ron asked me to come and share while he is on the mainland, and they're having a great time on the mainland. Uh, he got to go to the Husker game on Saturday, which is not necessarily a joyous occasion if you follow <laughs> Nebraska football. But anyway, so we're missing Pastor Ron. But when he asked me to step in, um, I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to share, and I just kept coming back to the topic that we've been talking about in our youth ministry for the last three weeks, and that's the Bible. And you'd be good to know that normally we talk about the Bible, but specifically, we just got out of a series really talking about what the Bible is, um, how we approach the Bible. And so I thought, you know, I got more and more excited as I was talking to your youth about this. So I thought, oh, maybe I'd share it with the church family. And then also, I didn't have to be original. So that was kind of nice as well. So we're going to talk about the Bible today. But first, because I'm a youth pastor, we're going to start with a game. All right? So I'm going to put some things up on the screen, and I want you to tell me what these things have in common. All right? So wait till we get all six of them on the screen, then I want to tell me what they have in common. Okay? So we're going to start with M&Ms, the candy. That's right, M&Ms. Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Look at that hair. The Jerry Curl was strong. We got the Nokia 1100, the brick phone, the movie Avatar with the blue people, Candy Crush, the game, and the novel Don Quixote de la Mancha. Can anybody tell me what these have in common? Best sell. Who said that? Man. Good job. That's exactly right. There were some interesting. Yeah, I was about to say, maybe it's, yeah. There were some interesting guesses last. So I'm, thank you for cutting to the chase for that. Yes, they're all bestsellers, which I can only imagine with M&M's is just because they've been around so long because there are much better candies than M&M's. Um, Avatar, a.k.a. Pocahontas with blue people, I'm just saying. Don't know why that's still the best movie. But Don Quixote de la Mancha is regarded as the best-selling book of all time. It sold 500 million copies, which is about five times as many as any of the Harry Potter books, except we all know that it's not really the best-selling book of all time. What's the best-selling book of all time? The Bible, right? And so, we, you know, I think Christians, that's kind of our thing. We like that. We're like, yeah, we got the bestseller, you know? And so I was looking online, and, and to, to be fair, to provide another side, because yes, it's the best-selling book of all time. It's by far been printed the most out of any book. It's been sold uh, by far. It crushes in terms of just yearly revenue. It crushes every other book. Um, in terms of revenue, people make 425 to $650 million a year printing and selling Bibles. And that dwarfs the next closest number. Not to mention it was the first book ever printed. It's never been out of print. We've got it pretty locked down. But I was reading on Atheism Network. I don't spend a lot of time on that website. But I was reading... <laughs> it's my favorite, you know. But um, I was reading on there, and he has some good points and things that we need to consider. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we like to fudge the facts a little bit and be like, but... He has some good points. One is that we can't really know how many have been printed or sold. It's been printed for so long, and a lot of times we like to maybe inflate the numbers a little bit, but even at the most minimalist numbers, it's by far been printed and sold the most. Um, his second point is that we've given a lot of Bibles away, which to me, I'm like, 
and that's awesome. He's like, no other book is like that. You know, you don't see people on the corners, you know, handing out Harry Potter books. That's a good point. But um, to me, that just, obviously people think the Bible's important. But his last point is one that actually kind of cut to my heart. And that's that he said, um, a lot of Bibles are purchased, but never read cover to cover. And that's a good point. And maybe some of us, we just have a lot of Bibles, so you're like, okay, maybe you bought the New King James Version, and you're like, yeah, never mind, and got a, you know, a different one, and that's sitting on the shelf. But many people buy a Bible and never really open it, or open it occasionally and kind of read some parts of it. So he said, how can we call it a bestseller when so few people read it cover to cover? And I thought that was a very, very good point. So this message is just to make you feel really bad about not reading your Bible. <laughs> so we're just going to sit in silence for the next, no. We're going to be talking about the Bible because, like I said, we can get a little puffed up that we have the bestseller, but I really doubt that we're going to arrive in heaven and Jesus is going to be like, forget everything else you've done. Bestseller, way to go, guys, you know. (laughs) The reason that we want the Bible to be the bestseller is because we believe in the contents and the purpose of the Bible, right? We should be wanting it to get into as many people's hands as we can because we believe in its ability to accomplish its purpose. And we're going to talk about what the purpose of the Bible is as we talk. But first, let's talk about what the Bible is. And our first little fill in the blank, it says that the best-selling book of all time isn't a book. And that's, this is not like a philosophical question. You're like looking at your Bible like, then what is it? No. The best-selling book of all time isn't a book. It isn't a book in the strict sense of nobody sat down and wrote from Genesis to Revelation, right? That wasn't, you know... He wasn't sending that in to the editors to be edited, right? The Bible is a, is a collection of documents. And I want to put this up on the screen because I really want to get these, these words are important. The Bible is a collection of documents from different authors at different times for different audiences, written in different styles for different purposes. And that sounds complicated, but we're going to be kind of talking about each of the elements of that, right? And so the next slide, it has the different things. So author. Right? It's important that we know that there's 39 different authors, 66 books written by 39 different authors. We need to understand that when we read the Bible. It was written at different times. The, the Bible span in terms of when it was written from about 1,500 years, and a lot changed in that time. Right? Audiences. A lot of times we think the Bible was just kind of written to all people at all times, but that's just not true. Styles. There's three main styles in the Bible. There's narrative, which makes up about 43%. And narrative is like stories, whether historical or parable, that stories. So stories make up 43% of the Bible. 33% is poetry, in which all the guys in the room were like, yeah, poetry, you know. And then 24% is something called prose discourse. And it's a big word for kind of what you read in a newspaper. Someone putting forward facts and ideas and wanting us to understand them. So there's different styles all the way throughout the Bible and for different purposes. The Bible was written for a purpose. Each book has a separate purpose and not each part of the Bible has the same purpose. And if we collect all of these together, author, time, audience, style, and purpose, kind of make up something what we like to call context. Have you heard that word context when it comes to Bible? So context is like the thing around the text itself, the things that we need to understand that are either not you know, explicit in the text or that we need to understand outside of the text. And context is very important because when we just read the text on the page, it's, there's some great stuff even then. 
That's the thing. We can get stuff from the Bible even if we don't understand. But when we get context, it takes it from a 2D thing and makes the Bible like a 3D image. We begin to see depth where we would have missed it outside of context. And the God that is presented in the Bible is so much better than we think he is when we begin to understand the context and what he was really saying in the communities that he spoke into through the Bible. And when we understand context, we understand we can't read Psalms the same way we read John, right? Psalms are, they're poems, they're poetry, they're meant to, to have imagery. We need to read that different than a historical narrative like John. But we also need to read John different than Isaiah because they're at vastly different times in history. But even parts of Isaiah we need to read differently than parts of Isaiah, right? And it kind of gets confusing. And eventually, maybe that's why the bestseller stays on the shelf because we're like, I don't want to have to figure all of that out. But we're going to talk about this idea of context. And we're going to start really talking about the author. Author makes a huge difference. Understanding the author. Understanding where that author was in his life and his understanding. A great example is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. If you've ever read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there's a lot of things like my little children, right? Now, if I wrote a book saying, calling all of you my little children, that'd be a little weird, Right? Listen, my little children, as I preach, you know. But John, at this point, was an old man. He was the last living apostle. He was respected as really like a grandfather in the church. And he's writing because he's concerned about uh, some of the things that the, the church is believing at this point. And so we can read my little children and be like, oh, that's weird. Move on. And we miss on understanding the author a little bit better. Another thing is time, 1,500 years. Can you imagine, you know, when you read an article from like five years ago, you can tell it's from five years ago because of some of the pop culture references, right? You're like, oh man, I remember when that song was big. I remember, you know, or maybe if you go back far enough, people are like, they are like, who is that? I don't know who that is, you know. <laughs> but it's the same way with the Bible, right? There are things that are vastly different. In the beginning of scripture, Assyrian culture was the dominant culture and had been for thousands of years, by the time we get to Jesus, they are long gone and the Roman Empire is in place. Vastly different cultures, vastly different understandings of God and, and of the, the universe. And so we need to understand when something was written. We also need to understand the audience. Like I said, sometimes we think that maybe Moses just sat down and was like, everyone everywhere, this is what God has said. But it's really, really cool and I don't think we understand how important it is that God spoke through certain people to certain audiences specifically. And if he hadn't have done that, imagine trying to read a love letter that somebody had written to somebody else, right? You wouldn't sit there and go, oh, that just warms my heart, you know? <laughs> or if I tried to write a love letter to my wife without mentioning any of her qualities. Lisette, I love your hair of an indiscriminate color. <laughs> your attributes, which I will not name, are very good. You know what I mean? Like, it's an empty, worthless letter. And in the same way, Scripture is empty and worthless if we don't understand that God spoke through people that were often the leaders who loved these communities, right? He spoke through Moses to the Israelites and other writers throughout the Old Testament as prophets, just trying to get Israel to understand. And these people who were writing loved these communities. Paul's great because all of his books that he writes, he, he names them after the communities he's writing to. But we need to understand that. When we read Ephesians, we need to read it like we're in Ephesian, not a Hawaiian in 2017, right? Or we're going to miss so much. One of the things I love about God, and you know, if you notice, Jesus does a lot of um, metaphors about sheep, which is really good, because how many of us keep sheep, right? <laughs> but to the people of that time, that would have made perfect sense. 
So we need to understand the audience. We also need to understand style. Like I said, um, narrative, you're going to read differently than poetry. Poetry, you're going to read different um, than a discussion. And honestly, most books are a mixture of all three. Right? So when you read a parable, you're not caught up in that it's real. I remember a discussion with my aunt and my dad, and my aunt was insisting that the Bible was literal. And what she really meant was a lot of people that just want to act like the entire scripture is just an allegory, just a picture, and none of it actually happened. She's like, no, the Bible's literal. My dad said, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Then you're a sheep. <laughs> you're also a coin and a host of other interesting things, you know? She's like, well, that's a metaphor. He's like, which is not literal, you know? So we can get caught up in this. But then we can also get caught up in the other side, right? People want to say, Jesus, some of that stuff was made up. It's really just a story that just is good ideas and Jesus was a hippie. You know what I mean? But we forget that none of that's true. And a lot of that has to do with purpose. If anybody ever tells you that the scriptures are just, that especially the gospels are just kind of good stories, then they did never read them, right? We're going to look at Luke. At the beginning of Luke, Luke does a great job of pointing out all five of those things in Luke 1. This is what he says. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything. And from now on, you can call me the most honorable Charlie. That would be nice. I'd appreciate that. But it's great, because what does he tell us? He tells us everything. Let's put up, the, put up those five things. He tells us the author. It's Luke. Right? We know it's Luke. He tells us the time, because it was within the lifetime, right? He could have gone and talked to people who had actually seen these things. He says his audience, most honorable Theophilus, right? Style, he says, this is going to be an investigative piece. This is historical narrative. I've done my homework. I've talked to people. And he says the purpose is so they can be sure that what they're learning about is true. So if people want to tell you that the Bible is just a nice little story, well, then they're disagreeing with Luke. Luke's saying that I did my homework, and I talked to people, and I know that this is true. And so each part has a purpose, and one of the purposes of the Gospels were so you could be sure that what happened really happened. Right? The purpose of the Psalms is for us to read these songs about, about sometimes hard things, sometimes joyous things, to have songs for our laments and our happiness. Proverbs is, is written from the point of view of a father, Solomon, trying to pass on his wisdom, but, but we also understand about the author, Solomon, was he was wise, but he didn't live a very wise life. Do you know that about Solomon? We call him the wisest man ever, but the dude messed it up, right? So if we don't read that with that context, we have this idea of Proverbs of this, oh man, Solomon was an awesome guy. But then you read other parts of the Bible and you're like, whoa. You realize he didn't live by the wisdom that he passed on. And then if we really look at Song of Songs, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go to Song of Songs. <laughs> That's a Bible joke. That was an inside joke. I'm sorry. I hate to do those, but if you got that, you get a gold star at the door. <clears throat> but the hard part is when we look at Scripture this way, it's exciting, but it's daunting, right? Because then we understand we, we can't just read the whole Bible like it's just whenever we want and just understand it. We need to look at context. We need to do all this. This sounds like school, and I'm not into it. But it's actually really exciting. And I want you to watch this video. 
um, and then we will continue to talk about the Bible. So I do want to give a shout out. That's called a, a place called the Bible Project. It's a couple guys. One is just a great biblical scholar. The other guy is an animator. And check that out. It's really cool. I love how it kind of pulls back and you see that mural that really just explains all of that. And I love a quote from that. He says, as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So the first part of that is we let the Bible interpret itself. And there are a couple um, nerdy kind of Bible terms, exegesis and eisegesis. To exegete scripture is to go in to understand and to pull meaning out of. To eisegete is to come with meaning already and kind of shove it into the Bible, right? And we want to exegete. We want to pull. We want to let the Bible interpret itself instead of us putting our interpretation on top of it. And the best way I, I heard to really understand this when I was in college was, imagine over here is Hawaii in 2017, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm trying to understand it in my context. Now, way over there across this river, that's kind of the time that's gone by, is the period in which that piece was written, right? So if I'm trying to understand Genesis, that's many thousands of years ago, right? So that's a big gulf. And if I try to kind of look from over here and, and give it meaning, I'm going to miss stuff. I'm going to misinterpret stuff. Um, but instead, if I make a bridge and I make my way over and try to understand to the best of my ability what God was saying to these people at this time, I understand the concepts and then I go back across with these concepts to my time and apply them. And the amazing thing is we have a God who never changes, right? So the things that he does, and if you didn't know this, the main character of the Bible is God. Sometimes we love biblical characters. We like to act like biblical characters are just awesome. Most of them are really not, right? And when they are, they're just acting like God. And so when we realize the main character of this story is God and his interactions, and he's trying to tell us who he is, so when we go find those things and we bring them across to our time, the reason that they're still applicable is because our God is still applicable. Our God has not changed, right? One of the other things I love they say in the video is, you're not meant to understand it alone or all at one time. One of the reasons I think we're so intimidated by the Bible is like, I got to figure this out before I talk to anybody, you know? And so you go off into the woods and you're just like, I'm going to share the gospel. In like 10 years, I'll be ready, you know? But you're, it's just about being a part of the journey, Right? cool thing about the Bible is my dad has read the Bible, I think, every year for like the past 26 years or something like that, and he still texts me. He's like, man, I was reading in Ecclesiastes. I've never thought about this this way. And I'm like, how have you never, how many times have you read this thing, man? You know, if you're reading Harry Potter and being like, what? It's the sixth time I've read it. I didn't see it coming, you know? <laughs> or maybe you're one of those people that there's no such thing as a rerun. Every time you're like, oh, I don't remember this, you know? But it's the cool thing about the scripture and the amazing thing that it was written that way. I love that where it's super simple, which can be frustrating because you can be like, that's not how I see it. And the other person's like, that's how I see it. But it allows us because it's so dense. It's so full of detail that we slowly understand it. Did everyone laugh when I said, did, did Adam have a belly button? Is that what you guys are laughing at? I'd never thought about that till I saw this video. And now that's all I think about. <laughs> I'm just like, which came first, the chicken or Adam's belly button? Okay. But I love that. And the reason we have Ohana groups is not just so we can get together and hear each other talk. But the cool thing about you were made for community. We get this idea of Christianity where you're going to be a hermit and like go off in the woods. And the, but that's not Christianity. 
You can be a follower of God, but to be a Christian means to be in community, means to be reading scripture and understanding because you'll be sitting across the room from someone and they may have a drastically different view of scripture than you. You're not meant to get mad at them or go to another church. You're meant to talk and be okay with disagreeing. That's one of the best things about being in a community is we don't have to agree, but I can learn something from you. You may change my mind or I may change yours or maybe we won't, but we're meant to understand scripture and community. So if you're the only one in your community that thinks something and you're just, you know, maybe you should, you know, just talk it out. Anyway, we are going to talk a little bit about the purpose of scripture. And we're going to look at Hebrews 4.12. And it's, and it's a verse we love to bring up when we talk about the Bible. Okay? For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And we love this verse because it has a sword in it and it's cool. But a lot of times we don't know what it means, right? One of my biggest pet peeves is when we just pick scriptures and we just put them all together and we're like, this is what the Bible is. It's like, no, context, okay? So we're going to start from the beginning of verse 4 and we're going to go through, but we're also going to talk about context, right? We're going to talk about author. And we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Tradition has told us it's Paul. Um, That's probably who it was. Um, but we're not sure. Time, it was written sometime before 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed and it mentions the whole temple. The audience was people who had been Jews but who had become Christians and who were starting to kind of slide back into being Jews, right? They were kind of cutting off ties with their Gentile friends. They were doing a bunch of stuff that they shouldn't have been doing. It's primarily prose discourse. He's trying to talk to them, but there's narrative and there's poetry all throughout. And the purpose was for them to see that the new covenant was better than the old, that they couldn't go back to the old way because the new was so much better. In fact, the word better comes up in Greek more times in Hebrew than it does the rest of the New Testament because he's just saying it's better. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better. So that was the purpose. And with that backdrop, we're going to start in Hebrews 4.1. It says this, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared, this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. So I I had to jump in somewhere. I figured you guys wouldn't want to read the whole book of Hebrews. But the them he's talking about are the Israelites. Because the rest he's talking about is the promised land. Right? That first rest that he promised. He said, if you guys get up here and claim this land, you will have a land flowing of milk and honey. But they saw the big people there and they were like, never mind. And so they missed out on the rest. So that's the them he's talking about. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest, even though his rest has been ready since he made the world, right? So they, they don't go into the promised land and they, he says, you can't enter my rest. But we read on. We know it is ready because of the place in scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard of the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God said another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. And this is one of those where we can go back and say, today meant today back then. The great thing is it means today, today as well, in 2017. There's too many days, but you understand what I'm saying. That's, that's promise is true that we can enter into God's rest today. 
God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. You can enter his rest. And we read on in verse 8. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So he says they will not enter the, into the promised land, right? But Joshua does eventually bring them into the promised land, which should be like, okay, we're good. But he says that's not the final rest. That's not the rest that I'm talking about. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. And this is when we finally arrive to verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one whom we, to whom we are accountable. So this scripture is saying what that video is saying. Scripture is a sword. It is alive and powerful because we are meant to go to it each day, to meditate, to let it cut into us, to, to expose what's really going on, that we would change, that this story would become our story, that we would become people that find rest in the presence of God slowly, slowly throughout our life as we understand it. That's why it's like a two-edged sword, not just so we can, you know, feel cool with a sword, but it, it has a purpose, the purpose of the Bible is that we would enter God's rest, that we would know him through his word. The Old Testament used this term, circumcise their hearts. It's a little bit of a vivid, vivid image, but it's that we would cut away the sin and the things that surround our hearts using the word of God, and we would expose our true hearts and that we would know God. This is important. The reason that the truths of the Bible, the reason the Bible itself is alive and powerful and still valid today is because we have a God who is alive, who is powerful, and who matters today. If this book was written by me somehow thousands of years ago, it's still a useless book. But all of these authors, all of these times and, and when God spoke, the Holy Spirit has been working to put this Bible together. And the only reason it matters is because he put it together, right? The only reason that the, that the Bible is alive and powerful and true for today is that we have a God who is alive and powerful and true for today. So it's one of my, I, I think I mention this every time I preach, but the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. He could have made it a lot shorter and just given us the actual list of do's and don'ts. But that's not what he has for you. Moralism is not, our, is not what it means to be a Christian. What we're meant to do is we're meant to make this story our own. We're meant to be a part of the story of God, and it continues today. The God of the Bible is calling you into his story, and that's what the Bible is. And this is a God worth getting to know. When you begin to understand the context of scripture, you see the depth of who he is and his love is amazing. It's so much better than you even know. His grace is so much more than you know. His justice is so much more than you know. He 
is an amazing God and he's calling you into this adventure of knowing him. Let's pray. God, we want to know you more. We want to read your word that is living and transforming a way for us to know you. So God, I pray that as we open our scriptures that um, we would fight past some of the things that keep us away from it and we would begin to really understand you. Lord, we're so thankful for your word and for this letter of love and, and kindness and hope that we now have. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.